All right, Will Ashton. No birthday party at the roller rink is complete without a little bit of pepperoni pizza. <sighs> Will, what's wrong? Well, I don't want to sound like I don't appreciate you throwing my birthday party, John, but I have to be honest, I'm feeling a little down. What? Why? Is it because no one showed up to your party because they're all social distancing? Or is it because knowing this, I still order 10 large pepperoni pizzas to make you feel better, but just the sight of all this extra food needlessly reminds you of the shame and humiliation of only one person showing up to celebrate your birth. Oh, and that I chose a roller, even though you don't know how to rollerblade, and you've never shown an ounce of interest in the activity throughout all of our years of friendship. Well, I don't know. I guess it's everything you just said, but also, well, look around, John. There's no one here. They only opened this place because you paid the owner and subscriptions to Luminary. They're just playing a fake uh, tape deck of people rollerblading to give off the illusion that we're around other people. Gosh. Well, I, I get it. I mean, goodness knows, it's not like we were doing much on Saturday nights before all this started. <sighs> if only there was a way to be around people again. And I'm not calling them on Skype in that godforsaken house you and I inexplicably now share together. If only we could go out to... Wait! That's it! Will, calm down. You're hysterical. What is it? What if there was a way we could go out in a different time? Will, you're scaring me. What are you suggesting? I'm saying... We might be able to go out into the real world again, but not in this decade. Well, you're talking nonsense. How can we go outside in another decade? Unless... No, you wouldn't. Indeed I would. That's... that's impossible. Well, that would... that would require... Uh... Yes, a time machine. A time machine? But how did... John, do you want to spend all day hearing about how I acquired the skills and tools required to defy the laws of time-space continuum and fortify the method to pick the pesky interdimensional lock to break the time cycle and other scientific mumbo-jumbo? Or do you want to go back in time and rock and roll all night, baby? Uh, I, I don't know, Well, I... John... It is my birthday. Now, are you in, or are you square? Well, in that case, I think you know my answer to your question. Hell yeah, dude. I think you mean excellent. this worked. The, the roller rink looks exactly the same. Hmm. Well, we can't be sure, John. After all, roller rinks haven't changed their design scheme since the 80s. Let's try ordering something from the snack bar to see if it's any different. Hey there. 
Albacoke. How many grams? Uh, no, just just a beverage. Radical. Hey, what the hell? I asked for Coca-Cola. You're drinking the future, man. That thing will be around forever. Well, look, that's not Coke. That's new Coke. It really is the 80s. Hell yeah, dude. That's the future in a can, brah. It worked. Come on, John. Let's go celebrate. But first, let me take a selfie. Whoa. Hold on a sec. Will, what's wrong? My smartphone isn't working. Looks like all the technology we brought with us is useless. Well, that's okay, Will. It's the 1980s. Nothing bad ever happened in this decade except for, I don't know, Pablo Escobar and Iran-Contra and the eruption of Mount St. Helens and the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster and the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan and you know, the latter half of the Cold War and the AIDS crisis and sure, maybe thousands of other things people never bring up. But it's not like I can think of them off the top of my head, so we should be fine. Two hours later. Well, oh, thank Pod, I found you. Hey, John, I thought you died back there. Well, I have to make a confession. I, I don't think I like the 80s very much. There, there's bullies here. At least two dozen people have said something really racist to me in the last 20 minutes. And I'm not even a minority. I tried to tell somebody that Bill Cosby and Michael Jackson and Revenge of the Nerds are problematic, but they just gave me a swirly. Same here, man. Wow. The 80s were a lot tougher than I thought. For some reason, all the movies and TV shows hyping up nostalgia for this decade failed to mention all the problems. Who knew? I've heard of stranger things. But, Will, what are you really saying? I'm saying the 80s... They weren't better. Or worse. They were just different. And because we didn't really grow up in the 80s, we shouldn't just blindly trust how the people who did live through them talk about that time period today. It was just another decade. Well, can we go home now? I don't think we can, John. I think we're trapped in the 80s for quite a while. At least until I gather the parts I need to build a new time machine. But, Will, that could take the entire amount of time it takes to do a whole episode of Cinemaholics. John, say that again. No. Well, fine. I remember anyway. We can just do a normal episode of Cinemaholics and review a few movies. I should have the time machine ready to go by then. Excellent. Welcome once again to a vintage Cinemaholics. I'm John Negroni, your host for this this tour of the decade of yesteryear, but I am also the box office columnist for Adam Tickets, head writer of Cinemaholics.com, and you know, I write books back in the time when people actually read books. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. It's Will Ashton. What up? You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive, on the World Wide Web. That's right, in just 15 years or so, you'll be able to type in www.cinemaholics.com. Cinemaholics.what? Cinemaholics.com, where you can find all of our all of our episodes, all of our written content, it's all there. And you can write in the show anytime by faxing us, sorry, emailing us, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And you can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. 
And if you would like to support our podcast uh, non-financially, you can do that too. Just go to ratethispodcast.com slash cinemaholics and you can review and give our podcast a rating super easy and super fast. And with that, well, let's get into our off topics because this, this is a special episode. We're doing this one a little late because mm-hmm. we decided that we're going to review a bunch of movies today and then we're yep. going to do a special episode that's just about Scoob yep. later. So what, what's the deal with that? What, are, what should we tease the listeners with? What do they get to know? Well, um, if you know what I do podcasting-wise outside of Cinemaholics, then I think you'll have a pretty good idea what may be in store for our following episode. But I think if you don't, then you're in for a surprise, because I don't know how you'll know these guys otherwise. But um, yeah, I think it's going to be a good time. I'm really excited for it. I am excited as well to talk about Scoob in general. And uh, that's going to be a fun episode from people who know Scooby-Doo the best. But for now, we're going to do a bunch of other movie reviews, and most of these are video on demand. So we're kind of sifting through some interesting movies that might be on your radar already. But if they're not, there might be a few in here you might find pretty interesting. We're going to start with Valley Girl. So Valley Girl is a remake of the 1983 teen romantic comedy of the same name. That film happens to be the first starring role for Nicolas Cage, and it was this hollywood rewrite of romeo and juliet where cage is he's like a punk rock loving romeo who falls for a valley girl juliet right hence she's named Mm -hmm. julie so we have this like stereotypical materialistic teenage princess who loves going to the mall they like material girl if you will yeah yeah then but we all live in a material world to be fair and uh they these two, these two young kids, they like each other a lot, despite being from different worlds, from within L.A., and everyone else around them. They disapprove of the relationship, and you get the deal. And I've essentially summed up the plot for this new take on the film. It's kind of the same thing. It transplants that same story into a new framing device, uh, kind of a new, or not a new kind of movie, but a different kind of movie for this story. So we actually begin Valley Girl in the present day with Alicia Silverstone from Clueless, of course, as a middle-aged mom, recanting the story of her first love to her daughter, played by Camilla Marone. But the way she remembers the 80s is kind of more of like a as a high-concept, ultra-fashionista, splashy blur of like 80s references that turns this more sort of like downbeat uh, com- comedy from the 80s into a jukebox musical. And the characters frequently break into song and dance, to very popular 80s music and silverstone is an unreliable narrator it's kind of established that she is so you can just sort of excuse that like this even though this is supposed to take place in 1983 the film kind of dates itself uh, we hear music from all over the 80s but it's fine because it's alicia silverstone's memory it works out so our main cast for the bulk of this film includes Jessica Roth as a young Julie Richmond. We, of course, remember her from the Happy Death Day movies, her small role in La La Land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have Josh Whitehouse from that Netflix Christmas movie, The Night Before Christmas. He's her bad boy love interest, as I mentioned oh, before. Okay. And uh, her, her close, clicky group of friends uh, are a lot of like TV actors you've probably seen before. We have Chloe Bennett sure. from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Ashley Murray from Riverdale, Jesse Ennis from Mythic Quest. And uh, unfortunately, we have the YouTuber, kind of mostly canceled, I think, uh, YouTuber Logan Paul. 
uh, he plays the douchebag boyfriend Mickey. Doesn't really have to act for this role, as you can sort of tell. And uh, he's a big reason why this film was actually delayed. It was made in 2017, or it was supposed to come out in 2017, but this is around the time that Logan Powell... Yeah, thank you. I think it shot it in 2017. It was supposed to come right. out not long after. Mm-hmm. And Logan Paul derailed it because all this controversy hit. He did a bunch of stupid stuff. We don't have to get into it. But we also have Judy Greer, Mike Whitman, Rob Hubel. This cast is packed with familiar faces. But personally, well, I cannot help but feel like for the most part, these great actors are kind of squandering their talent in a film that's mostly just... It's just barely okay and passable. But what what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I had, I guess, more expectations for this film than a lot of people did because it's like a <laughs> kind of offbeat combination of a lot of things I really like and a lot of things I really despise, which being that, like, I mean, obviously, I think I've talked quite a bit about how much I enjoy Jessica Roth in the Happy Death Day movies, and I think she's a really talented young actress who hopefully has a great future ahead of her. And um, there's Judy Greer, as you mentioned, in this. Uh, a lot of really talented people besides Logan Paul are in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a remake of a Nicolas Cage movie, who obviously I have a lot of affinity for. And it's a musical, but unfortunately, it's also a jukebox musical, which is my least favorite type of musical. Because more often than not, like I, I don't think they're bad in principle, I guess. I just think that more often than not, they just become karaoke <laughs> with big budgets and uh, big name stars. And... You know, I mean, some people like that. That's fine. But for me, musicals are more a form of expressionism. It's like any other art form where it's meant to show the inner life of the characters, kind of get a sense of what they're dealing with internally and expressing that outwardly in a very beautiful, moving way. And jukebox musicals are more just a chance to play kind of familiar songs with, uh, you know, catchy upbeats. And they're just basically a lot of covers. And that's more or less where I stand on this film. I think the, the musical numbers are in general kind of a mixed bag but they don't really further the plot in any particular way they're just mostly like hey what's an 80s song that's popular that kind of sort of relates this scene or hey what's an 80s song that we could work our way into this scene by a plot point going this particular way and it just kind of feels like they're writing the movie around the songs more than they're just writing the movie which obviously they have the yeah it's a it's a nostalgia bait yeah that's it's i i would say kind of more nostalgia poisoning because it's like (laughs) <laughs> this very kind of like bubblegum sweet version of the 80s, which is fine. Like I get that the movie intentionally has the framework of Alicia Silverstone so that it can be obviously, like you said, this unreliable narrator. So it's like obviously her very nostalgic look at the 80s is informing the story. And I mean, that sort of excuses it, but it also just doesn't really have much commentary on the 80s themselves. And it doesn't really make sense why it's the 80s other than the movie itself uh, originally came out in the 80s. Like I think it would have been more interesting if they played with the fact that because it's Lisa Silverstone, it was in the 90s instead. Like, I think that might have been a little bit more, I guess, relevant for what they're going for with this film. But I understand that because of like Stranger Things and whatnot, that like 80s nostalgia is really hip and popular. And so that's the way things are going. So I, I don't know. I mean, I guess as far as nostalgia itself, I'm kind of indifferent, but I also feel like it doesn't really add much or take away from the film. And I guess that ultimately informs what I feel is a fairly kind of middle of the road jukebox musical like it's not particularly bad for me like i didn't hate myself watching it uh besides the scenes with logan paul because uh like many people have a complicated history with him and i think 
Uh, the less I see of him, the happier I am. And seeing him with uh, two or three actresses I really enjoy is a very unsettling thing for me. But uh, he's not really in it as much as I feared. So it wasn't like he fully like derailed the movie or made me uncomfortable throughout it. And he's also like generally like in maybe like 30 minutes of film. So I can understand why they had to delay the release. But by and large, he doesn't sink the ship necessarily. I just think the film itself wasn't particularly strong to begin with. It was just kind of a so-so remake uh given a little bit flair by making a musical but ultimately it doesn't really i think stand out particularly better in any particular way with the exception of maybe jessica ross performance which i think is very lively inspired and i think she is putting her all into it but i i feel like that kind of makes it worse because all this you know bright talent is put into a fairly mediocre musical so i'm kind of uh wishy-washy on it overall yeah, you know, what you mentioned about the unreliable narrator stuff, it kind of verges on lampshading. Like, but the funny thing is, it, it is a little bit more nuanced and we're probably making it sound. It's not like they come right out and say it until, like, there's, like, one line of dialogue where the daughter is like, wait, people were singing and dancing? <laughs> and so that kind of helps establish that, like, yeah. okay, yeah, what you're about to hear has been edited. Uh, I do want to say this was directed by Rachel Lee Goldenberg, who is kind of an interesting director. She's made a lot of films with The Asylum. Uh, if you've heard of The Asylum, they are yeah. kind of like a junk food sort of uh, film distributor. Like what they do is they make these low budget, like direct yeah. to video things that you see in like mm-hmm. Redbox. Um, yeah. And what they tend to do is like they tend to remix, like they, they try to trick you. They, they make movies that look and are almost like like big mainstream films so that you'll accidentally pick them on Redbox, and i hate that business model i think it's like a spitting in the I face of like what movies are supposed to be i think i think you're selling a um kind of half look at asylum because i i mean not to really defend them but i think the business model you're talking about where it's like transmorphers or like whatever like parody of transformers they have is like part of their business model but most of it i think is what people recognize from like sharknado and stuff where it's like them basically you know doing um like very high concept very goofy premises that are just basically sold on the title themselves or like three-headed octopus versus mega shark whatever like i think that's more what i think people associate with asylum which are fairly kind of like self-aware intentionally kind of crummy movies that i i think what bugs me more is that they at their worst tend to just not really care. They just like obviously sell a movie for very low budgets and they just sell it on the premise themselves. And I think that's what annoys me more than like this, this dishonest premise of them, like pretending to be big budget blockbusters. But I just was, that's where I was going with, with asylum. Well, yeah, I just, I think that what I, I don't think of them solely for Sharknado. I know that's part of what they've done, but I, I, I think they're called like uh, the movies they make are like mockbusters yeah, and yeah, that, that's just something like with the exception of like a couple of film films, I think that that's like broadly their reputation. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just find it pretty annoying personally. But, you know, Goldenberg, she's also made uh, web shorts for Funny or Die. Um, mm-hmm. Did you ever see the Lady Time series? I don't think so. I know she, she also did a uh, yeah, I know she did like a like Lifetime parody movie with um like Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig. I think that was probably her most famous film, I guess. I guess they call it Deadly Adoption. Yeah. Deadly Adoption, that's from like 2015. Um, but yeah, yeah, so she, she's been around. She's done, you know, some TV work with like Mindy Project and things like that. So uh, this is definitely a film that like 
I, I am curious, like if it had come out in 2018 as originally planned, like how would it have come across to people? Also, uh, Amy Talkington uh, did the screenplay here. Yeah, I just, uh, this this movie, I'll tell you this much. I'd say that like when, this is the first movie that I saw in like our list of movies we're going to talk about this week. And sure. after Same seeing here. some of the other movies and how mm-hmm. bad they are, <laughs> like okay. I kind of am feeling a little nostalgic for Valley Girls. Like, man, it wasn't that bad. I mean, like compared to a couple other films uh, I saw this week, I actually thought this did this did have some charm, and it does have a lot to do with Jessica Roth. I'm really excited to see uh, her next two movies because she's in um, uh, Body Brokers, which is supposed to be coming out soon. Um, What's that's that? the uh, John Swab movie she's in with uh, Frank Grillo. And Michael K. Williams. I don't know. I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, Body Brokers. I think that comes out um, later this year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, okay. It's kind of just like a, a smaller film. But then there's yeah. also uh, All My Life. Um, I think yeah, that's I in post-production. Yeah, I think it's like a universal film or something. Yeah, it's uh, um, Broken Road. The Broken Road Productions, the Universal okay. does. So she's in that okay. with uh, Harry Shum Jr., the guy from uh, okay. uh, Glee. I know you didn't really watch yeah, that, yeah. but I guess we did sort of bring up um, Glee last week. So, sure. Um, yeah, I'm actually looking forward to that one because that's coming to us from uh, Mark Myers, the uh, the my friend Dahmer uh, screenwriter. I think he did. Oh, nice. I think okay, he directed cool. that yeah. year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all that said, uh, Jessica Roth. I know you're a big fan, so I, I heard yeah, a rumor, yeah. Lashen, that you, <laughs> sure. you wrote something about Jessica Roth. Would you like to share it with the class? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a rumor. It's a, a piece I think you <laughs> might have read. So it's I, I, it's fact. Um, yeah, for Cinema Blend, I wrote a piece uh, explaining why, in my opinion, she should be a superstar and why I was annoyed that um, what I felt was a fairly star making role in Happy Death Day didn't really result in much past like this. And I believe there was another film called Forever My Girl, which I haven't seen either. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's. You know, it's it's a shame that she hasn't really elevated much beyond those films. Like, I think people really like them, and I know a lot of people saw the first one. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's a bummer that she hasn't really elevated past uh, these kind of smaller films. And so I'm hoping that eventually she gets, like, a big role either in, like, some prestige drama or some big blockbuster where people really realize that she's a real deal. But, I mean, I think she stands out in a lot of films that aren't necessarily that great and she's usually the best thing about them and i think this is a pretty good example of that where i think if it weren't yeah. for her involvement this would have been basically like a kind of run-of-the-mill like tv movie production um and i mean there are some other really talented people in it but it just kind of feels like a fairly substandard uh, music film musical but i think her screen presence is very apparent here and i think like you said it is very charming mainly because of her and the chemistry she has with the uh, whatever the guy's name is, uh, from night before Christmas. Um, yeah. Josh Whitehouse. Yeah. I mean, I will say that, like, I think the women in this film stand out a lot more than the guys, uh, with the exception of, um, there's a kind of fun side character of, uh, the drummer guy. I, I, I feel like I recognize him from something, but I can't put my finger on it. But... Yeah. That's the guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's, um, sticky. That's Mario Revolori from, uh, Spider-Man. That's a coming far from home. He plays the flash. No, wait, no, I wrong. think you think of his brother, right? Because that's a, yeah, I think that's his brother because he played uh, the guy from the Grand Budapest Hotel, Zero. Oh, I think you're right. They just kind of look very similar, huh? I think they're brothers, aren't they? Because they have the same last oh, name. You're, oh, Tony Revolori. Yeah. I think yeah, they're yeah, yeah. you're right. You're right. Two, 
Well, I think because uh, I remember seeing Mario, this guy, Mario Revelry from uh, the last summer from last year, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't oh, yeah, see you that didn't one, see but that, I know you but talked yeah. about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember you had, yeah. <laughs> had like a transcendent experience well, watching that, so. <laughs> I've mixed them up before because it, 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 legit, if you look at them side by side, like they look super, I mean, they're brothers. Um, right. But they have yeah. very, very similar appearance. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Are they twins? He's not in a lot of this movie. Um, I'm not sure. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think they're just super close in age, to be honest. Okay. But anyway, um, I, I was going to say too, like Mike Whitman. She, I think it is wild that she has been playing a teenager for 20 years. <laughs> like, just the, my Whitman, uh, one of my favorite actresses. She voiced Katara. Avatar The Last Airbender is now on Netflix, by the way. Definitely check it out. But yeah, my Whitman's in her 30s now. Also, like Jessica Roth. And I swear, like, we've been seeing her as a teenager since, like, Arrested Development. <laughs> and uh, I just think that oh, that yeah, is yeah. pretty hilarious. But yeah, and then Jessica Roth, too. I think she's, like, in her 30s as well. And she's... I think that was something that kind of strained this movie, was trying to believe that Jessica Roth is in high school still <laughs> um but you know yeah, it, you, you sort of just have to go along with it and then i, I do yeah, have yeah. to say uh, the thing i liked most about jessica roth in this movie was that like every once in a while all of a sudden there were these really good scenes where like the costuming and the cinematography and the music all did kind of line up and it was always like yeah. centering her like there's like a love at first sight kind of moment there is a new take on girls just want to have fun that centers her and these were the parts of the movie where i was like oh that that's that's the stuff like that's that's where this movie could have been like uh really something special um and she's putting all that work into it but then it just sort of devolves into you know the pretty standard conventional teen comedy stuff that we've all seen before yeah i mean yeah i I was thinking of uh i think it's the beginning of kids of america like at the pool scene where like that scene i think is like a moment where it works and i think it's mostly because of her it's like a tracking yeah. shot that under i really pressure. enjoyed um yeah 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 uh well under pressure is weird because it's it's like kind of trying to be like this, like it. les miserables it's like this tra- like les miserables like group number <laughs> and it's just like yeah. I-, I think it was a better idea and concept than it was in execution because like for one they had to climb up the hill of having Logan Paul sing Freddie Mercury, which I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how you you make that work, but if anyone could, I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's like I think there's like little nuggets of stuff in here that I really enjoyed. And it's enough to make it like almost passable. It's enough to make it like a tolerable watch. Like I didn't begrudge this experience. Like I think it's a fairly harmless movie. It's just very vanilla. And um, I don't know. I mean, like I. I wasn't mad about it. Like I know some reviews have been really negative and I think it's just because it's like kind of like rock of ages thing where it just feels very sort of trite and kind of like uh shallow, I guess in its presentation, I can see where people are coming from with that, but I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just the star power of Jessica Roth. Maybe I was just in the mood for something kind of uh, lighthearted in the midst of a fairly uh, dour point in history but uh i don't know i didn't hate it i didn't really like it but i thought it was you know just a fairly kind of middle of the road uh musical that um you know it'll be a blimp in jessica ross career i guess but um hopefully it better things in uh the scheme of things this is a fairly harmless remake that i don't 
I can see why people are fairly negative on it, but overall I didn't hate it. I thought it was a, a very much a like kind of definition of a C plus kind of movie where I think the star power is enough to make it a little bit more tolerable, but I also don't think there's really enough here to make it stand out even compared to the original Valley girl, which I saw for the first time over the weekend. And I didn't think was a particularly amazing film, but it felt a little bit more sincere, I guess, than this one did because this one has like this kind of weird tonal balance where it's like kind of trying to be ironic, but it's also trying to be like emotionally honest. And it's this weird kind of, uh, everything about it just seems kind of like off a little bit. And I think that kind of derails the film overall. But in the end, you know, I wasn't mad I saw it. So C plus seems pretty accurate. Yes, yeah, C plus is definitely my grade as well. I think we're just kind of on the same page with this one. Um, very curious if that trend is going to hold up for the rest of this episode. Uh, um, yeah. But as very we uh, transition into... I Yeah, but before we get into Capone, uh, I do want to bring up... Um, something that's been kind of developing today. I wasn't sure if we were going to bring it up on the show. Uh, Just briefly, I did want to uh, bring up that um, as we were getting ready to record this episode, we found out sadly that Fred Willard, a wonderful Mm -hmm. American actor and writer, uh, passed away this weekend. And it's it's a pretty big hit. Uh, He's a very beloved actor, um, someone who's been in countless movies that I love. uh, And I know... Will, uh, I think you were a fan as well, and uh, it's clearly a, yeah. a pretty pretty tough loss uh, in the film and TV community right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because it came pretty close to another big death, uh, at least in the film scene, which was Lynn Sheldon also passed away. Um, people probably yeah. know her more for her TV work, like Low and things like that, but she was a, a big um, component of the mumblecore movement of like the early 2000s, and obviously, I guess, the late to mid-2000s as well, and... Uh, yeah, I think she was a filmmaker. I've talked about a couple of her films. I know I think I talked about Sora Trust on the show at one point. That was her last film. Um, yeah, I mean, just both those were really just bummers because, you know, I mean, I I guess, you know, Fred Willard really lived a long life, but it's so obviously tragic to know that he passed. But Lynn Sheldon, I thought, was also, you know, coming into her own as a filmmaker in a lot of ways. And I thought her best work was still ahead. So those are two very sad and sudden pass- passings. Uh, yeah, so that was a bummer. Uh, very much agreed. Um, I think, yeah, it's very tough with Lynn Shelton. I was going to bring her up as well. Um, her most recent work, I think, was Little Fires Everywhere, which mm-hmm. just wrapped up its season on Hulu. And yeah, she's very young. Uh, Fred Willard did live a long life. He was active in film for many, many years, uh, I think like 60 years um, as an actor, you've also seen him be a voice actor, a comedian. Uh, he just mm-hmm. has been in so many great things. I, I love so many yeah. films featuring him. Um, I, I love some of his TV work. He had a very, this is especially kind of tough because he passed away, his character passed away on Modern Family. And mm-hmm. so that must be very surreal for the people who worked on that show. Um, and of course, all of his loved ones. And um, his, I know his wife, Mary, passed away recently as well. Uh, just mm-hmm. a year or two ago. And so it's it's unfortunate, but like you said, he lived to be 86, and I think he has a tremendous legacy to look back on. Um, this is Final Tap, probably my favorite role. Uh, oh, really? Also okay. just one of my favorite movies. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I think the one I associate him with the most is probably Best in Show, or maybe Anchorman, but yeah, I mean, it's Final Tap, of course. I mean, Anchorman, for all the sure. Stuff he, yeah, I mean, all the stuff I think with him and Christopher Guest was really good, but um mm-hmm. yeah i mean yeah he austin said, powers the, the, mm-hmm. 
Um, and I believe he still yeah. is going to be in um, Space Force, which is coming out to Netflix in like a week or so. So, you know, still have that to look forward to. But yeah, it's still, still right. a, a big loss, um, especially for the comedy community. I think he was just one of those guys everyone really liked. And I think he was always yeah. like everything he was in. He was just he just made it a little bit funnier just because he was just always on the ball and just had that delivery that just nailed it every time. So, yeah, it's, it's a big loss. Yeah. And I yeah, just to reiterate space force uh he has a recurring role on that show that's the the new show from greg daniels creator of the office so mm-hmm. uh looking forward to seeing that it looks pretty funny and um i agreed i i, I want to say one of the first things uh, i think i ever saw fred willard in was probably the wedding planner funny enough um but also uh wally uh, he's oh, yeah, the only live course. action actors we've ever yeah. seen in a pixar movie and uh he plays shelby forthright and uh you know, I've I've ri- I've literally written um, uh, two books where I have like sort of uh, taken that character Shelby forthright and played around, and I so I've sort of studied Fred Willard before and his his speaking mm-hmm. style and sort of do like some narrative fiction with him, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just surreal. It's a, it's a tough loss, but um, yeah, we're thinking about him, and uh, you know, I knew as we started recording, we were like, yeah, we should definitely bring this up when we can, and. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess with on that note, we can move on into our review of Capone, which uh, kind of a weird movie to transition into after that conversation. Yeah, I was say, that's a weird, we'll that's a weird transition. Yes, yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> uh, this is a biographical film about Al Capone. Uh, it was directed and edited by Josh Trank. Uh, this is the, his third film um, we've seen from Josh Trank. Uh, we, he wrote this like he wrote his last movie, Fantastic Four. Um, which was a bit of a disaster for him as a director. Came out five years ago, really derailed his career despite. Oh, you said, yeah, it's a putting it mildly to say it was a disaster, I think. Yeah, uh, it it was quite a disaster. He kind of got put in director's jail and uh, because he was, he he had some personal issues, I think, dealing with the people who, uh, or I guess we should say like when that movie was bombing with, reviews he kind of threw a temper tantrum about it um was publicly complaining about um some of the creative uh some of the creative decisions that he felt like were made without him it's a whole it's a whole thing and it put him in director's jail because people look at that and they say all right i don't need to work with this guy you know who clearly doesn't seem to play nice with others and uh his first film chronicle was a big success i mean it kind of launched um Dane DeHaan's career in a lot of ways. Uh, it was a big, big, uh, big platform. I think for Michael B. Jordan at the time. Oh, he was going. Was he going to make the Boba Fett movie, and then he got kicked off the project because of Fantastic Four? Right. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic Four really derailed uh, his career. He's kind of bounced around. And the unique thing about Chronicle, the only movie that he made that people seem to really respond to, um, he didn't write. It was written by. Uh, Max Landis, who has also uh, not exactly been a uh, celebrated guy yeah. in Hollywood in quite a while. Um, that's a conversation for another day, I suppose. But yeah, so yeah. this is kind of his return. Like He is coming back with this film where, you know, in a lot of cases where we have like a director sort of trying to get back in everybody's good graces, what they usually do is they usually make like a crowd pleaser, you know, like they try to make something <laughs> that's kind of safe, kind of like just like a slow restart but josh Trank was like no not gonna do that i I, say what you will about josh Trank. this guy's creative he is extremely creative 
he's just and stubborn and stubborn <laughs> very stubborn which is a good recipe the problem yeah. is i just don't think he has a ton of talent when it comes to executing films and so that kind of leads us into capone which outlines the final year of al capone's life when he was deteriorating from neurosyphilis and dealing with dementia uh, at this point in his life he's in his late 40s he he uh, got let out early from his 11 year sentence um, they got him on tax evasion but this, this is al capone the guy who was like a, a big mob gangster one of one of the first notorious mob gangsters of the 20th century uh yeah, responsible the for most the notorious in hmm? this movie I mean, the movie says the most notorious. So by their definition, yeah, it's like he the was, biggest. Yeah, Ch- Chicago's public enemy number one, uh, responsible for a lot of death. And uh, this movie kind of goes through a period in his life where he didn't really have a lot of power. Uh, he's played here by Tom Hardy. Uh, Linda Cardellini is playing his wife. Uh, Kyle MacLachlan is his doctor. Matt Dillon is like a, an old acquaintance who reenters his life. And Tom Hardy in this movie, a lot of prosthetics. Uh, they've done a lot to sort of just really age him, um, even past like what a normal 48-year-old would look like, considering mm-hmm. uh, that the real Al Capone really was like deteriorating like this, based on what we know. Um, it's just funny because Tom Hardy's like he's in his early 40s, so like they they still have to do a lot to like capture how this guy was just breaking down. Yeah. Both and mentally and physically, physically, very gracefully as well. So uh, <laughs> that's true. That's another. Yeah, Tom Hardy's a looker. We'll say it. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So so we'll ask you. Uh, why, why don't you describe kind of the br- the brunt of this movie? What are we watching here? Yeah. So I mean, you 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 kind of uh, laid the 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 specifics, I guess, a little bit. But um, yeah. So we're basically looking at what constitutes the last year of Al Capone's life, where he is uh deeply sick with um syphilis and he uh has also had like multiple seizures at this point and yeah he he is basically on the decline strokes. sorry strokes yeah um so at this point yeah he he's on his last legs and it's another film kind of weird to see this come out fairly shortly after um the irishman and uh to an milder extent maybe true history of the kelly gang where um, we're taking a, uh, you know, very kind of mythic, notorious gangster, like you said, like probably one of the inspirations for like Scarface and like, you know, like, you know, like this very kind of like idealized old fashioned gangster. And we're showing him at his like most decrepit, his like most vulnerable and uh, really just like a broken shell of a guy, which. I mean, I think a lot of people are going to come into this movie expecting kind of more like a cradle of grave biopic of uh, Capone's life, like looking at, you know, like just like how he became a gangster and stuff like that. And really, this is not about that at all. Like you said, like we don't even see him in jail. We just see him living in this one location. Um, Pretty much the entire film takes place in uh, his big storied mansion in Florida. And we see him basically just haunted by his demons and really just trying to, like, figure out where he left all his money and uh, being haunted by this uh, love child that he had that uh, is, um, you know, coming back to him. And we also have uh, this huge sense of paranoia that's coming in because uh, rather justifiably because he is being uh, pursued by the FBI for, you know, countless things. So, um, yeah, it's just really, you know, just him. It's a very much a character study kind of look 
at this mythic figure and just really seeing it more for the man than the myth. And um, uh, I think that appealed to me uh, based on the way you're describing the film, uh, notably more than it did for you. But I will agree that I think Josh Trank is a pretty good filmmaker who really wants to aspire for greatness. And I think he does have talent, maybe a little bit more than you're suggesting, but I think his ambitions are very much higher than what he is capable of producing. So this movie feels like it's trying very hard to be like a concentrated epic, but I think the execution, it very much wavers. Like sometimes it feels like kind of like a TV movie and sometimes it feels, you know, like very original and weird and um, other times it's like somewhere in between, but... I think what really carries a film and I think what's going to make or break it is Tom Hardy's performance, which I think some people are going to see as a little too like cartoonish and bombastic, I guess, maybe for what this movie is trying to be tonally. But I don't know. I think it really worked uh, for me just because he is such a magnetizing presence throughout this whole thing. Like he's really like one of those. It's really one of those performances that I just couldn't stop watching. Like it's just it's a very, you know, hard Thing to see a guy you know like lose all self-control basically deteriorate to a shell of himself but uh tom hardy is just he is very much a star power kind of actor i guess i'm using that phrase again after uh jessica roth but it's true um yeah i think he really has that magnetic presence that makes understandable why he's getting more leading man roles and he is really invested in josh trang's vision for this and i think those two working together really made this stand out for me in a way that I can definitely understand. I could definitely understand why this movie is just not going to work for some people. Like some people are really just going to be repelled and turned off uh, by what this is and what's trying to do and all that stuff. But I don't know. It really got under my skin and uh, I, I can't say it's a like full out great movie or even, I don't even know if it's a good one, but it's definitely one that uh, intrigued me and vested me throughout. I, I definitely don't think this is a good movie. I, I think it's grotesque. I think that it, yes, Tom Hardy is doing a great performance, but it's one of those, like, when a great actor is in a terrible movie and, like, their performance is almost, like, unintentionally perfect for what's happening. Um, and, and I think here, here's my issue with this movie, and I, you know, I, I had the same moments where I was like, well, you know what? At least he's swinging for the fences here. At least Trank is trying to do something different. At least he is being, you know, ballsy with this this mm-hmm. movie and with this story. Uh, I think that's all respectable. But my thing with this movie is I just think it's a miserable slog just as a movie. I I don't oh, I disagree. I think I, I completely find the scenes just repetitive uh this movie doesn't have any tempo it doesn't have any momentum you're just sort of staring at a guy slowly die and every scene is telling you the same thing over and over again and that's what makes me miserable about it it's like i don't like this guy he doesn't have motivation he's just sort of vacant and we get these like brief you know glimpses of like flashbacks and him slowly going crazy but nothing's revealed here there's no insight to be gained from i i don't understand what trank is trying to say he's just kind of just pushing us into this kind of mad mad world for no reason it feels like and so i I didn't take anything away from this i just found this to be uh the same energy over and over again and i i was miserable watching this movie i i found it to just be uh just so grating and just 
I, I think it's like you don't have to show us all of these scenes where this guy is, you know, clearly, you know, pooping himself. And like it, it to me, it's played as like almost to be ironic or funny. And and I just I don't find that humorous of like what it's like for people to go through something like this. And I especially don't like um, any sort of movie that doesn't doesn't want to engage with sympathy in any sort of way because you, you don't want to sympathize with this guy considering what he's done but i definitely think like if you don't know a lot about al capone i can't imagine understanding this movie because they and, it, and that's not a bad thing necessarily this movie does not hold your hand with anything with capone like it, it kind of only reveals brief snippets of his infamy and his reputation through like radio stories and how people sort of act around him but to me it just never really gels because it just seems like there's no consistency between do people fear him do they pity him it, it doesn't really i don't know that it never really comes together so I, I just don't think this quite works even though there are moments where i i kind of understand why the idea for this movie like i was saying before is a good one and i do think josh trink is just an extremely creative guy who he has uh, really good ideas for movies. I just, man, when it comes to writing them and finishing them and editing them, I just don't think he has a way of like connecting uh, his like view of the world with a movie that can impart that to other people. I, I just think that he makes this stuff and he's really proud of it and good for him, honestly. Uh, but yeah, I definitely just do not, did not click with this movie at all. Hmm. Yeah, I guess we just have to disagree on this one because I mean, I do agree that he does have a clout and he does, I think, have uh, a sense of wanting to do something that's maybe a little bit outside of his reach, especially with this film. Um, but yeah, no, I, I didn't really find it quite as miserable as you did. If anything, I was more surprised by how frequently entertaining it is just for the sake of it willing to be as weird and uh, audacious as it is. Um, thinking back on scenes like uh, him, uh, you know, singing unison with uh, the Cowardly Lion from The Wizard of Oz or like him shooting a gator while fishing, which I mean, I get that. Like, like I said, this is not something that's really going to appeal to a broad audience. And I respect that for Josh Trank, because I think he just wanted to make a film that was a lot more singular and uh, off base in a way that I think is intentionally trying to maybe alienate some people. And, you know, I, I guess I respond more to films like that because they're willing to do something that's just not the same look at Al Capone that we've gotten, you know, from several stories and several movies before. It's looking at this very historic figure in a way that is very uh, striking and weird and sad and also attend in, in spots very funny, but uh, just something that I think really shows that he is going to probably in his later films really get even weirder and maybe more alienating with his stuff, which, you know, I mean, you can either respond to that. You don't. Um, I think I'm more receptive to those type of just <laughs> those type of choices. Um, whereas I can see some people just being like, I don't, I'm not about it. I don't want it. And, uh, you know, I think it's just what you, how you look at the film and how you perceive it. But I think there's a little bit more here than you're giving it credit. I think, especially looking at like, uh, historic figure like acknowledging that he's going to die and recognizing that like even though like some part of him is going to live on it really doesn't and uh, you know acknowledging that like this very large in life figure is just like crumbling before all these people and uh, yeah I know I mean, there's like a very much a sense of humanity here that I think 
Um, it, you don't often see in biopics like this, I think are willing to just kind of just show the highlights and wanting to just kind of like see the same type of stories that we've seen several times before. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm a little bit more receptive to that. I can understand why you didn't really respond with it and why you found it to be ultimately a slog. But, um, ultimately I think what makes or break it is, um, uh, Tom Hardy's performance, which I think is just, even when the film is not really consistent, he is just a constantly magnetic presence. Like I said, that I think really just drew me in from the get-go and I, I found his performance to be the the key to what made this film uh weirdly sort of endearing for me so um yeah I gave it a high B minus uh yeah I, I couldn't disagree more with a lot of that I sure. just I, I I just think that none of that humanity really comes through I, I don't think the movie ever it's a cruel film yeah it just yeah it's very cruel and it's it, it doesn't reckon with or it doesn't allow him to reckon with anything you just feel like this guy, I, I never for a moment felt like Tom Hardy's character in this is even thinking about, because you can't tell what's going on in his head. It's not written very well. Like I just never had an impression that like, oh, he feels guilty about something or he wants something. It just feels like he either is going senile or he's like, just it's just mania which to me doesn't have that humanity. I, I don't think it it has like, like with the Irishman, that reflection on like a, a tragic life. I think if that had come through in this, I think you could have, I think I would have responded to, responded to it quite a bit more. But instead in this, I just sort of see this guy flailing around um, in a performance that is overacting to an extent that I can, I certainly respect and I appreciate. And I'm glad that um, you and several other people I know are enjoying it quite a bit and and kind of, you know, jiving with that energy and that tempo. Uh, I just, I, the reason it's a slog for me is not because the filmmaking itself is necessarily bad all around, because you do have good cinematography in here. You do have some pretty inspired uh, costume design and staging and ideas for scenes and set pieces. I just think it's the way it's all woven together t is just nonsensical but in a mean-spirited way. And, and I, like you said, I just don't respond really well to movies like that. Um, but if you do, I think that, you know, this could be your bag. And I d this was sort of sold to me as like bad in an interesting way, which I can certainly agree with. Uh, it definitely is that. Um, and it does remind me a little bit of how Tom Hardy um, handled Venom, you know, very similar uh, kind of movie yeah. in the sense that it really is trying to be Weirdly, a very yeah. specific thing. And Tom Hardy's giving it his all. The thing that bothers me a little bit, though, is that man, Tom Hardy's such a good actor. And even though I do like that he doesn't go for the easy Oscar bait films and that he instead picks more interesting roles, uh, sometimes I do wish that he got to work with like or kind of got to do bigger films that kind of match the prestige of things like Inception and Bronson and Black Hawk Down. And I don't know, these films that really tap into like what's magnetic about him, at least for my taste. Uh, but it sounds like you liked his performance quite a bit in this and what he's doing here. Uh, I do think it's pretty audacious and I applaud Josh Trank for making something that isn't safe. Um, I, I, I just think that, uh, I, I just don't think he nailed the landing personally. So I'm a C minus uh, on Capone. Yeah. Um, one last thing I wanted to talk about is uh, LP score, which I meant to mention earlier, but I didn't, but I, I don't know. I really liked it. It's good. Yeah. I mean, I it's enjoy it. It's very much not what you expect. From, I think, yeah. uh, a movie like this, but I thought it kind of under it, it helped to sell what I think is ultimately basically a horror movie in this, which I found really compelling and not what I really expected going into this. Um, so 
Yeah, no, I yeah, I can see where you're coming from. I think that's a response that a lot of people are going to have, but I don't know. I, it's one I'm going to be thinking about. I, I imagine more than a lot of other films that come out this year, maybe in some other movies I like more, but like you said, I admire the ambition, I think, more than anything else. I think Josh Trank had a really specific idea for he wanted for a cop, uh Capone movie and to some extent he did it so uh yeah you know more power to him for doing what he wants to do um one last thing I'll complain about is that uh I'm kind of sick of Linda Cardellini having being cast as like stereotypical doting wife characters um I think she's she's great and dead to me yeah I was gonna say it's supposed to be good yeah that's that's a show that kind of understands what makes Cardellini uh, so great and uh it just seems like between being Hawkeye's wife and you know, it's like, it just seems like these movies just don't know what to do with uh, yeah. a tremendous actress. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that was another complaint I had about this one. Although to offset that, I really dug Matt Dillon in this. I thought he yeah, was, was cool. a scene stealer and I was like, man, this guy, it's like, you kind of see what's coming with his character to an extent, but sure. there were, there were a lot of moments where I was like, man, I kind of wish he was in more of it instead of just like a few scenes. Um, and I do appreciate mm-hmm. seeing, uh, Oh, what? Huh? Kyle McLaughlin? Kyle McLaughlin, yeah, yeah. Uh, very cool very cool guy. Very uh, fun dude. But, um, but were you thinking of someone else? Well, yeah, so <laughs> I'm trying to remember his name, but uh, I think it's Noel Fisher. The, uh, the, he's the, the guy from Shameless who plays his son. Okay, well, I haven't seen Shameless, but okay, yeah, fine. his son in the film. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah his son. Uh, the one that uh, people know about. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciated seeing him in a movie because I don't think I've ever seen him in a movie. I've seen him outside of Shameless. He's a good actor. Uh, although he's, you know, he's fine in this. Like, I don't think he does it much. Yeah, but, I mean, I, yeah. Thought, yeah, I thought it was all right. Yeah. But that is Capone. It is on VOD right now. And yeah. kind of, it's on VOD. We didn't mention this is from Bronze Studios and Redbox yeah, and Entertainment. Redbox. Yeah. yeah, Vertical picked it up. I think that uh, they, they wanted this to have like a big release, you know, but mm-hmm. nobody bought it. Nobody seemed to want this movie and so <laughs> doesn't really surprise me all that much even though i am favorable on it right uh last i saw it was a 39 percent on rotten tomatoes so like you said i think like yeah it's not it's not a crowd pleaser it's not a mainstream kind of movie but it sounds like that's what you like about it to an extent or you kind of like it in spite of that stuff um somewhat yeah i mean i'll just say that like i, I do think there's generally good stuff in here i think the execution's a little mixed but i'd much rather see movies like biopics at least they're willing to do like this than like another like you know beginning end of his life just like very like just like snippets of sure yeah his, like judy like yeah so well judy's a little bit closer to this but yeah i mean that's what i'm saying I'm trying, now i'm saying this right. is kind of like judy oh okay yeah so that's fair yeah i mean i'd, I'd see more docs like or biopics i mean uh, like this and judy as opposed to something that's a little bit more like broad reaching i guess uh they appeal to me a little bit more and like you said, I mean, I think there's enough ambition here with Josh Trank that I really admire it. Just, I mean, the execution doesn't really come together as much as he wants, but there's enough here that I value. All right, let's talk about another film that we might disagree on. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. All right, this oh. is another VOD release. It's called Driveways, and oh, yeah. it actually premiered last February at the Berlin International Film Festival. Uh, it actually went on to tour quite a few other festivals, including Tribeca. And now FilmRise has finally put this out into the public, so you can rent or buy it right now. This is the second feature film from Andrew Ahn, who has made several well-known short films. Uh, I think uh, one of his short films he actually used to come out to his parents. Uh, So a very unique filmmaker, very creative guy. 
And uh, his debut film, Spa Night, came out in 2016, and that was actually a Kickstarter-funded movie. And so now we have his sophomore feature, Driveways. Uh, it stars Hong Chao, who I think we last saw in Downsizing with Matt Damon. Although I, ha- I still haven't seen Downsizing, but I know you saw that. You reviewed it mm-hmm. on the show yeah. with, uh, I think, Corey. Either Corey or Matt. Uh, I think Matt, yeah, Okay, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so Hong Chao plays a single mother who takes her young son, Cody, played by Lucas J., to the house of her deceased older sister, who happens to also be estranged to her. Uh, and this house was left here in the will so she can sell it and, you know, make a little money for her and her son. She's kind of, they're kind of down on their luck. They, they don't have a lot. Uh, the twist, however, is that her sister was a hoarder. So it turns out they're going to have to stay uh, around this house for a while, although they can't even sleep in the house. They have to sleep in the outside porch because it's so filled with crap and like a dead cat and it's just super gross. Um, so while the mom is trying to get all this stuff sorted out, she has her own problems she's dealing with. Uh, Cody, he's pretty bored. Um, he's feeling a bit alienated in this place where he's never been. He doesn't know anyone. And he actually goes on to befriend the next door neighbor played by the wonderful Brian Dennehy. And, you know, this is it's just like a laid back summer movie about a kid who's learning a little bit about himself and the world, trying to overcome his social anxieties with the help of an older man who just, you know, seems to to get his odd soul in a way that other people don't. You know, I think this is a sweet movie. It's like a, a warm mug of sugary tea. But I have to say, well, I struggled to really, really like it on a deeper level. Uh, mainly because I found a lot of the dialogue, especially with the kid actors, uh, most of them, if not all of them, to be extremely painful. Uh, like some of it is either underwritten or overwritten. So that and a few other things kept me from really adoring this film in the same way I think a lot of other people are. I think it's winning a lot of hearts. Uh, but what about you as well? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it won my heart. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I put this on your radar, maybe. I, I know I mentioned it to you and um, you weren't as familiar with it until I mentioned it. Well, I first it, heard but... about it from Alyssa Wilkinson because um, she okay. was a fan. Uh, that's Alyssa yeah. Wilkinson of Vox.com for this view. Mm, yeah. Right. But I think it was like, you know, it was kind of a fairly under the radar movie until, um, unfortunately, Brian Dennehy passed away. And uh, it, it kind of unfortunately yeah. uh, coincided with the release of this film. I guess fortunate sense that more people will see the film, but unfortunate that the circumstances would lead it to such. But um, yeah, I mean, Brian Dennehy is an amazing actor and he is uh, the main reason I wanted to see this film because I think he's one of those actors I know, like, I think he's an actor's actor in that, like, I think a lot of people in the acting community really respect him, know that he's really good, but I don't think he ever really pushed beyond um, like that into like mainstream success. Like, I think he had a lot of acclaim on the stage, but he never really had a lot of film success outside of like some key roles. But um, this, I thought was a very fitting and loving tribute to him. But more than that, I don't know. I just found it to be a really endearing, sweet film. And it reminded me of the type of, uh, small kind of, uh, downbeat, uh, indies that I would like to check out a lot in like the, like mid to late two thousands yes. where they're very, um, you know, like very small scale, like not too many high stakes, but there's, you know, definitely stuff going on and, uh, it's a lot of understated drama, but it's a lot of character driven story and, you know, it has a big heart and, uh, it felt like a kind of refreshing return to those type of films, which, uh, for a variety of reasons, are becoming less and less prevalent uh, in mainstream cinema or even indie cinema. And uh, I thought, you know, I mean, I can see why, I guess, it can be a little 
maybe a little bit too slight to really become like a classic or really earn such the effusive praise that it's gotten from a lot of other critics. But I, I think there is a lot to value here. It took me a little bit, I think, because it is such a kind of slow burn minor film for me to really get into it. But once I think the key relationships are in place, um, I don't know, I, I was really taken by it. I think it, it was really effective at capturing this kind of quiet, offbeat relationship that, you know, it's it's very small scale. It, it's not like going to like change these characters forever, but it does capture a very specific moment for these people. And it felt honest to me. Like I, I didn't really have the problems that you had with the kid dialogue. And even if I did, I felt like that was fairly minor in the scheme of things. So um, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate this. I thought, you know, it was just very well handled, very intimate, uh, definitely the type of indies that I tend to gravitate towards and the type of films that I've been missing uh, in recent years. And uh, I'm just kind of bummed that you didn't have the same experience with it. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely agree that I, I personally think it does get better as it goes along. You know, um, I think that uh, one thing I felt a little let down by was uh, Hong Shao in this movie. I think that oh, yeah? and she, I just didn't think her story arc was uh, as explored oh, like the character, the character okay. yeah the act yeah. The, the acting is great um for okay, her yeah, I, was gonna say, I thought the performance was good it yeah. really is i just think the writing was a little bit like we were missing something with that character to really come out between her and her son i just think that she just sort That's of fair. doesn't change at all or i don't know it felt like the movie was leading up to something kind of different and maybe a, a rewatch i would i would sort of see what maybe what uh what the screenwriters hannah boss and paul 13 were going for here Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it does get better as it goes along. And I think that the ending is a huge gut punch, um, oh, yeah. but in a good way. Like, I don't think this movie does like a lot of tropey things that you would expect, which I appreciate. Uh, I'd say when, when I say the kids acting, I'd say Cody's acting. That's another thing that does get better as it goes. And it's mostly fine. Like, I, I don't think this kid is a bad actor. Uh, I think yeah, he's actually, he's easily the best <laughs> kid uh, in sure. this movie. Uh, I just think whenever other kids like enter the movie, the way they talk and like, I don't, I, it just really took me out. I, I just was like, too this much is flossing. terribly written. <laughs> what? Too much flossing for John Jonas taste. <laughs> <laughs> I can't connect with the kids of today, I guess. Uh, that was just something that really grated me for some reason. Um, I also, I, I kept laughing at this movie and not with it because it's just so hmm. hard to not see it as like a weird sort of unintentional live action remake of Up where you have like, you know, the sort of like loner kid befriending the kind of quiet, you know, older guy, although he's not like a big grump or anything. I did appreciate that he is kind of just nice. <laughs> um, but that was just something that that's, I think that's the thing that kind of kept me from being like, this is really essential is just like, well, I, th- I thought that it, it's like one of those movies where not much really happens. And I, I just feel like it was missing something. I don't know. I'm still kind of working through how I feel about this movie because I, I do think it has a lot of the sweet and tenderness that uh, sweetness and tenderness that I wish more movies did have. I, I just feel like it didn't really, it didn't really hit my heart uh, in the way that I, I, I was hoping. Um, I just kind of found it okay. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess I can see because they both have fairly symmetrical heads why you could compare Brian <laughs> Dennehy to uh, the main character of Up. But um, yeah, and otherwise I didn't really, um, I don't know, I guess beyond like the surface, I didn't really catch too many comparisons to that film. Yeah, I mean, I do think this is an easy film to get like lost in the shuffle. Like I think of all the films that uh, we're going to talk about this week, this is probably the one that's going to fly the most under the radar because it's not. it doesn't really have like a catchy premise. Like it doesn't really have anything that's like, 
you know, grabby or anything that's going to like really like pop out. And like if it's on like Netflix or something, it's just a very, very intentionally minor, like kind of slow beat film that, you know, I mean, I could see that not really working for some people. I can see why that might make it a somewhat underwhelming experience. But um, yeah, like you said, I think as it went along and as I got more into its own kind of quiet beat, I was really taken by it. I was really won over by the performances. And I did like, like you said, that didn't really opt for a lot of tropes or big moments, even when things were getting more dramatic. Like it kept that sort of emotional honesty that I felt was really endearing and felt pretty honest to me, even when there was like kind of like scripty moments that were starting to come up at the end. Um, I, I think I credit that to the direction and that like I think it just and the performances that they, they kept that sense of sweet emotional sincerity and honesty that I felt uh, really was endearing and I felt was really sweet. And um, yeah, I, I think it's a type of film that'll probably be more of a critical darling than maybe an audience favorite, but I do, I can't see a lot of people really outright disliking this film just because it just has so much sweetness. And so it's so goodwilled and it's so pleasant. And there's a lot of things I also, I think um, that from a perspective standpoint that I really admire, like how our lead kid, like it, it really gets like that sense of being a quiet kid. And like when you're like parents are in a meeting and like, I don't know, like I could really relate to him. just like, peeling on like the like the tape and like just like kind of like you know having like seeing the world from like a big place but like also like still very intimate and close to his mom and it it it's it all pretty much rang true for me in a way that was able i was able to connect with it and ultimately find it resonating and i have um i think i've watched the ending like two or three times now just because i do think like you said it's such a gut punch and such a beautiful send-off for Brian Dennehy and um yeah I mean I I guess I ultimately just was more taken by it than you were which I'm sorry you didn't have that experience but I hope no one else uh feels begrudging not to experience it at least just because I think most people are ultimately going to enjoy it if they even if they don't love it as much as I did and some other critics did just because I think it is like I said just a very sweet loving movie that um I, I think ultimately rides on its good performances and uh understated charm so for me it's a pretty easy b plus and i imagine you're probably uh a decent bit lower than that but so be it no no I, look i'm not well ashen misunderstanding me i'm like a pretty high b minus pretty close to a b and i i'm just gonna say like i do think people should check this out i just think you should manage your expectations because uh the good stuff in here is great but there, there's just there's some rough around the edges filmmaking in here as well, and so I'm just trying to be fair to that. I think that it's it's pretty B minus B territory. Um, I guess if I were real Ashton, I could say for me it's between a B minus and a B, <laughs> and uh, so I'm gonna say C plus. I mean, plus. you have you have noticed I haven't done that at all this week. <laughs> I've been pretty straightforward with my grades. We don't. It's not that, that reason. It's not that I want you to stop doing that, Will Ashton. I think it's a trademark. You know. Um, sure. But yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm a pretty high B minus. I could see it going back up to a B. It, it is one of those movies that I think when I initially saw it, I was like, oh, whatever. Uh, but it, I have, you know, a, a week seeing it ago now, I, I, I do look back on it pretty fondly. And I, I remember the good stuff more than I remember the stuff that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So um, that's Driveways. Uh, I think it sounds like a pretty, pretty enthusiastic recommendation from Will Ashen. And a, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and check it out if you like the trailer from John. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about a documentary. And this is our last, oh, yeah. uh, I think this is our last video on demand, right? Or no, I think uh, we have we, another one coming Are we talking up about later. two stars? We're, we're talking about or, Spaceship Earth. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I think I think uh, to the stars. I don't know if we have time for that this week. Okay, uh, we got a well, bunch of tease that next week. I know we keep we keep pushing it off. But uh, Spaceship Earth, uh, this is a new documentary from Matt Wolf. Um, it's about the 1991 biosphere experiment. Did you did you know about this biosphere two thing, Will? Before you saw this, um, not really. I mean, I recognize the the building. Like, I I know I've seen pictures of that. Yes, like that that location, but I didn't really know the history or what the purpose was. I just know I've seen that like picture and like fo- photos of Arizona, but other than that, I didn't really have any familiarity with the story. Yeah, I definitely didn't know this story. I knew th- some of the things that have parodied it, like Biodome. And, uh, there's oh, yeah, for sure. There's an episode of Hey Arnold that kind of parodies this whole experiment where like Arnold yeah. and Helga are like trapped inside of a, I think it's called like a biosphere or something like that. Yeah. Um, the plot of the Simpsons movie. Sure. Uh, that's something sure. I've definitely seen. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you, you, <laughs> as much as you love the Simpsons. But yeah, so, so the whole point of the Biosphere 2 experiment uh, was they were trying to create this like self contained like self-sustaining world that could survive a planet that would one day be just ravaged by climate change or it could be a precursor to space colonies so we could have a biosphere ostensibly on mars that would be able to produce its own oxygen um, have its own terrain and like it has like all these different like a like a i think it has like a lake a rainforest and they had all these creatures in there and we follow the kind of early days of like really what they amount to are like hippie adjacent scientists who sort of have their own commune in New Mexico. We kind of start with them in like San Francisco in the 1960s. And uh, we find out that they sort of just become like a collective under a very charismatic, almost cult like leader named John Allen. And then that eventually grows into this experiment which gets greenlit by a very well-known billionaire at the time ed bass into a way for humans to experiment with a self-sustaining world Um, very unique premise i think a very very interesting story and we get a lot of uh, interviews and talking heads with people who were in this biosphere they were in there for two years and they they had no for the most part outside contact um, besides like video and radio calls, but like they weren't going in and out except for like one incident. Um, and then, so we follow the controversy of it, the media backlash, but I gotta tell you, I, I feel like by the end of this documentary, I, I wasn't really enamored with this story. Like, I feel like it was just kind of like, Oh, that's kind of neat. Like it kind of made me think of like watching like a discovery channel, like brief, you know, overview of this situation. I don't think, uh, I don't think the documentarian, did a really good job bringing something out of this story. It just felt very surface level to me, uh, ironically. But uh, what, what did you think? Will? <laughs> well, John, we, we've had our disagreements on this episode. We sparred a little bit, um, but, you know, we come around in agreement on this one. And All that, right. I, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it rides a lot on the intrigue of the premise, which is, you know, obviously very interesting for a number of reasons. But I mean, yeah, I, I think the execution is what, what, kept me from really enjoying this film because I, I think the film, like you said, it takes a very a weirdly, very sort of a neutral approach to this, which I guess makes sense given it's a documentary, but it felt like it's kind of in this weird in between place where it's like admiring and respecting these kind of rich hippies for doing this kind of audacious thing. And also sort of like laughing at them a little bit and like acknowledging that like, yeah, this is 
it's a little silly, wasn't it? And so it's like this kind of weird tonal clash for me where it felt like the premise of the film kind of, like you said, like it inspired all these comedies for a reason because it's kind of a goofy idea and has like, you know, these kind of outlandish personalities involved. And it feels like it could have maybe taken that Tiger King approach where it, it kind of gawks at these guys. And I'm not saying that's better or worse, but just felt like this sort of indifferent approach to it was a little odd for me. And maybe people would disagree and maybe people see it differently. But I just felt like the execution, the approach was kind of at, at odds with itself, where it was going for something based on the story, something a little bit more kind of scandalous and a little bit more gossipy. And then there's like this other more serious, like respectful approach to it, where it's like acknowledging, you know, these scientists who sacrificed two years of their lives to do something about it. And for me, like, I kind of wish one way or the other, I don't know if it would have been better or worse one way or the other, but at least it would have taken more of a side. And I think it would have been a little bit more investing in one way or the other. As it stands, I felt like it was just kind of an average take on what was a, a fairly fascinating story that could have been told and invested in a lot more interesting ways. Yeah, I have to echo a lot of that. Um, I I just I just wish there was more science in this movie, uh, this documentary. I just I don't think they really focus on what was so unique about this experiment and what like they kind of just glossed over the most interesting stuff, which is what was life like in this biosphere. It's not a big chunk of this documentary that we spend in there, and I just think that they focus way too much on the media controversy over the inner lives of these people. You know, it's like, it just feels so defensive of like, Hey, we were really great. Like, you know, the media took us all wrong and it's like, okay, yeah. fine. How but, dare they? Well, yeah, but can, yeah. Can you get yeah. in a little bit more detail? Like what was it really like in there? It just feels like the questions they were asking the people were so softball. And it's, yeah. it's pretty obvious to me that, you know, it's almost like they were trying not to rattle them because they seem mm-hmm. kind of like defensive about this situation. So, you know, that that's why to me it just feels fairly vanilla when you have such a, an intriguing premise for a documentary. And that, I think that's what's ultimately so disappointing about it. And I have to agree. I, yeah, I think the, the climate change angle, it's definitely interesting and it's definitely something that uh, really informs what these people were trying to do. And I don't know. And here it doesn't feel much more than a conversation starter. Uh, never really feels like it's uh, the real foundation for this documentary. And I don't know. I, I just think Matt Wolf kind of made something here where I think it, it might be one of those cases where he started and was hoping that he would find the documentary along the way. But I think the the downfall of that sometimes is like you can actually uh, the, you can actually end up with nothing because you didn't know what you were looking for almost. Um, so it, it's really hard to make documentaries, I guess is what I'm saying. And so I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to make it sound like it's easy. And, you know, certainly, uh, he's certainly a talented guy. I, I haven't seen a lot of his stuff, but you know, he's, he's certainly a, a, a he's certainly good at putting a documentary together, but, uh, oh, and I forgot to mention, this is a Sundance documentary. I didn't see it, um, this past January, but, uh, that's when it did come out and neon is distributing it now. And it, it seems to be getting some attention and good reviews. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to release this movie now. Uh, right. I also uh, forgot to mention that it's kind of fitting that they put Capone out as well, since that's also kind of like uh, a home-based tale in a weird yeah, way. Somebody, but, yeah, somebody decaying I mean, while they're stuck at home, spaceship or right. about people literally starving on their own oxygen because yeah. you know, it can't right. leave. Yeah, so I mean, it makes sense. I think it was wise for Neon to push this out now, just because I also don't think this really needed a big theatrical rollout. Like, I think it, it's more of a kind of streaming oddity anyway, so it made sense to put this on Hulu. But 
Um, yeah, like you said, like there's like little like little ideas here that kind of creep out that suggest a more interesting documentary, maybe even one that was more willing to kind of push these people. Like they mentioned, like, yeah, you know, like these guys, these weird hippies are kind of like a cult. But it's like, oh, OK, <laughs> why were they like a cult? Like, you know, anyway, uh, and just Don't like I, lost yeah, over exactly. that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's kind of a big thing to, to bring up and not not, you know, dig into. But like, yeah, it's just like stuff like that where it's like. I think there's a really compelling, interesting documentary here. Either it just needs to be a series, like I know it's going against our whole McMillan's conversation, but either there's just you got to push more into this and like really dig into it, or you just kind of have to focus on one key aspect and really kind of push and dig into that idea. But yeah, I just kind of felt like it kind of like like overlook documentary that you know it it covers a story fine like like i said it's a fairly average documentary it doesn't it's not bad in any particular respect but it just felt like it it could have been something a little bit more interesting a little bit more uh compelling and given the premise but yeah for me it's just a kind of like ho-hum c plus documentary overall c plus for me as well interesting episode it's like we're either spot on with our grade (laughs) or we're wildly different (laughs) Yeah, um, it seems. we're either at each other's throats or we're we're buddies and, and <laughs> yeah. along for the ride. We're either cross-armed opposites or shoving buddies. Yeah, um, right, exactly. <laughs> this guy. Uh, all right, well, that's Spaceship Earth. Yeah, not much else to talk about there. Um, do you want to bring up real quick another documentary that just hit Netflix called Becoming? Um, this is uh, the latest documentary from Higher Ground Productions. We brought we brought this one, this production studio up a few times. The one that has the obamas as their producers and that makes sense for this documentary because it's about michelle obama um it's kind of about how she is it it goes into like her early life and not a lot of her middle life but uh, you know some stuff and then what it was like as the first lady and then the aftermath of that and it's kind of a kind of a study of who michelle obama is in light of everything that's happened in her life it's this documentary is based on her memoir which is called becoming uh she yeah, did this big book. book tour in 2018 and yeah this is a very standard documentary i think that uh, there's nothing about it that's revelatory uh, i think that I, I i was wondering like okay who is this documentary for because i feel like if you're a huge fan of michelle obama by all means like especially if you read the book this is something you're you're obviously going to really like. Like you're going to like this because you like Michelle Obama, right? I don't think this is necessarily a documentary that's going to change hearts and minds. Because I know a lot of people are pretty poisoned against uh, Michelle Obama for political reasons, um, and they they'll watch this and be like, "I still don't like her." You know, like that's that's just kind of how it is. Uh, I wonder though, like people who are kind of like they don't know much about Michelle Obama, maybe they're just not clued into politics in general i think they could find this pretty interesting like a, a nice netflix movie to pass the time uh, like i said though it's just not very revelatory like you you still get the sense that she's being very guarded about what she really thinks about things um, i think the real magic of this documentary is just watching how she talks and interacts with younger people uh particularly young women who are you know going to her as like a mentor and I did wonder, you know, at times I'm like, you know, is this how the Obamas are going to be in our society going forward as like just these people who went through something pretty extraordinary, you know, the being in the White House, the, the first African-American family um, to be in the presidential White House. And I think at this point they, they went through all of that virtually scandal free. Um, they're wildly hated by a small portion of the country, but 
pretty well liked and well either well liked to like adored by a significant mass of people in this country because they're just genuinely nice people um and the uh, and you know whatever you think of barack obama uh he's pretty popular for a reason uh, just pretty, they easily connect with people um, they come off as very genuine and authentic and it is kind of interesting to see that um, in the wake of these documentaries are doing with higher ground this latest one is just another exercise in the obamas sort of just putting themselves in the spotlight because they know that that's kind of what a lot of people want, and uh, there is something kind of refreshing about reflecting on a time in American politics when we did have leaders who were uh, definitely of a different caliber. Uh, I guess I'll put it that way, um, who were just gen more genuine people who weren't cyber bullies and uh, who could really make you think, uh, even if you disagreed with them, and just had a lot of class. And so... Uh, that it, I, I found this uh, hard to watch at times because of that. But uh, it, like I said, though, standard documentary, nothing crazy about it. It's not going to take you for a whirl. It's a B minus. I think that uh, if you're you're looking for it, I think you should definitely find it because it's it's what you're looking for. Uh, but yeah, if you if you want something that's going to really uh, shift what you know about this person or maybe change your mind about certain things, uh, it's not really what this documentary is even trying to do. And I don't think it's like a must watch by any means, but you know, if you're looking for something on Netflix that is, uh, is an easy watch, like something that's just going to sort of take your mind off things for a minute. Uh, this, this does have uh, a way of in both engaging you with politics, but also not just trying to like raise your, your blood pressure, I guess, if that makes any sense. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's pretty, pretty small recommendation, pretty high B minus almost to be, um, kind of kind of the, the trend for me i guess in this episode but uh yeah that's becoming and uh i know will you you've thought about checking this one out i understand it's like it's, it's hard to watch things about politics especially these days yeah i mean like i said i've read her book i have um you know i have nothing against michelle obama i just don't really think i'm in the mood for you know like like mm -hmm. what you said like a fairly you know pleasant but not really examining look at a political figure who you know, like I think maybe another year I'd be more interested in that. And, you know, I think Michelle Obama has a fascinating story, but I guess it just seemed like, yeah, like kind of like on the verge of kind of being like a puff piece, which maybe yeah. maybe a little bit a little cruel really to is. say, but it just kind of is. I mean, it's, it's yeah. PR for Michelle Obama. Right. Which is, you know, I'm not against that in theory. I just don't really think I'm in the mood for that. Same as the same reason why I didn't really check out that uh, Hulu Hillary Clinton documentary and just like. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just not not really in the mood to, you know, see PR pieces about politicians that aren't really uh, on the ballot this year. So, yeah. Um, yeah, or really at all. So, you know, maybe maybe in 2021 or 22, I might check it out this year. It just doesn't really seem like my thing, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. nonetheless. It's a real preaching to the choir movie. That's for sure. Although I, I did get the feeling that she really wants people to think that she's not going to run for public office like this documentary does kind of take pains and i guess that's probably in the book to an extent that she's not very interested in politics um, but she's interested in a lot of other things that are what i consider pretty important and pretty uh, are things that are going to really help people um, from the look of it so that's becoming we have one last movie to get into i really don't know much oh. about this one though uh, you watched it <laughs> I, I've heard like rumblings, I guess. This is called the wrong sure. Missy. I heard it's pretty terrible. Yeah. I it's it's a real underground sensation. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. What what is the yeah. wrong Missy, Will Ashen? All right. Well, 
This is another. I, I'm I'm gonna watch a terrible movie that John's not gonna watch because it's number one on Netflix. Deal. <laughs> um, following the grand tradition, uh, it's turning into like a column almost. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So basically, this is the new Happy Madison production. Adam Sandler is a producer on it, but he doesn't star in the film. It does star David Spade and Lauren Lapkus, who I think is more of a podcast figure than maybe a, a comedy like uh, actress. I guess, I mean, she's done a lot of, you know, acting things. I know particularly she was in Crashing, the HBO series. I think she's done a bunch of other different things. But Jurassic World. Primarily, what was it? What was it? Jurassic World. Was she in Jurassic World? Oh, yeah, she was. Yeah. I forgot about she that. She was super yeah, fun on that. She's like, I got a boyfriend. <laughs> Love it. But she usually yeah, plays like smaller roles. Like, you know, she, she kind of gets more of a reputation for doing podcast work, particularly with Earwolf and Comedy Bang Bang. Um, yeah, so this is her first like major role in a fairly major film. Uh, and basically the core premise of the film is David Spade's like this mild mannered, recently divorced, uh, like vice or I don't know, some high ranking office guy who, uh, goes on this date with a very eccentric, uh, you know, very loud personality and, uh, it is a terrible date. He doesn't want to do anything with her ever again. Uh, and three months pass and he is on a plane and he has a meet cute with this very, you know, radiant, beautiful woman who uh, matches his personality and, you know, very movie fashion way. And uh, they trade numbers. They have a little fling in the janitor's closet and he decides to text her back and he asks her if he'll go on this big Hawaii trip. That is going on because they have this connection. But uh, lo and behold, her name is very similar to the name of this other woman they went on a date with. Uh-oh. So he Uh-oh. texted the wrong Missy. And, <laughs> There's uh, no one texting her now. That's a tagline. Uh, so, yeah. So basically it's this um, I forget what they call it, like a um, situation where they are both stuck on this island on this trip where uh, they have very clashing personalities, her kind of bullish uh, sense of humor and just general sense of personality uh, very much contradicts uh, everything that he's about. And, you know, they have this, you know, conflicting personality types until, can you guess what happens, John? I can't. This this seems oh. pretty original <laughs> to me. Yeah, they, they, I, 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 I might shock you to let you know that they, they start to maybe have feelings from one another. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, this movie's terrible, <laughs> uh, and uh, in a pretty impressive way. Like, I mean, like Happy Madison, uh, you know, say what you will about them, I guess, but they, they tend to know their audience. They tend to make a very kind of particular film, one that's more and more often nowadays uh, in a beautiful exotic location where our familiar cast of characters tends to uh, spend a lot of time, you know, lounging on like boats or like on the beach and things like that. That seem, you know, like maybe they're kind of mixing business with pleasure and uh, having uh, maybe just more fun making the film than the audience is watching them. But uh I knew that going into this and uh, I took that at full value, knowing that this would be a good platform for Lauren Lopkiss. Like I said, I think she's a very talented comedian and I think she uh, is an accomplished actress, uh, especially in the podcast world. So I wanted to see her get a big break. And I mean, I guess to some extent this is, but 
um, it just feels like, well, for one, I mean, obviously she's playing a very garish, uh, intentionally unpleasant personality, which I mean, is fine. And I think it's almost progressive in the sense that like, we don't really see a lot of women play these roles, like usually in the happy mess and, uh, world, like, you know, the women are kind of more like the cross arm, like, oh, the boys will be boys type of personality. So it's a little refreshing to see. Uh, a woman is accomplished as Lauren Lopkiss kind of playing against that and allowing herself the freedom to kind of really go wild and broad in this type of performance. But I mean, it's all this effort and all this, uh, you know, this talent being pushed into what's really just a grating, obnoxious movie with really no uh, direction or really original, any real sense of originality as far as its premise or what to do with these characters and it's just in a very grating experience. It's like Happy Madison making the Heartbreak Kid remake. It's just, it's just an entirely unpleasant film. And it goes about in a very predictable, boringly unoriginal way to the point where it feels like one of those parody films that was in Happy, or was it Funny People, that uh, seems even beneath Happy Madison's standards at this point. But at the same time, you know, Lauren Lopkiss, I think, is a really bright, talented uh, personality and I think it's clear that she's really doing everything she can to make this role stand out and she's not bad in it I mean she really commits to this character in a way that would be endearing if the film if the film deserved anything worth endearing but uh yeah it's just it's just a real hassle to get through and I mean it makes me uh nostalgic for the days when you would complain about something like Six Underground or Coffee and Cream or Spencer Confidential <laughs> where uh, I mean, I'm not going to put those films <laughs> above many others, but at least I could tolerate those films way more than I could this. This is really the pits. This is like the bottom of the barrel. And uh, uh, I think this is, for me, like one of the worst comedies I've seen in a while. Probably the worst in the past few years if it weren't for Jexy, which I happened to catch earlier this year, which is just, just horrendous. So um, for me, yeah, this is a pretty low D+. Plus. Mainly just because of Lopkiss. If it weren't for her, I'd, I'd pretty much give us a D minus or an F. Just because it's, it's like I said, it's a pits. It's really bad. But her star power and her willing to com- her willingness to commit to this is uh, uh, admirable only in the sense that she's really going for it. But depressing in the sense that it has to be for such a uh, hellish ordeal. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, skip this one at all costs. Well, can you do me a, a massive favor? Biggest favor you've ever given me. Oh, wow. What's up? I'm going to need you to rescind all of that criticism and pronounce okay. this as the best movie you've seen all year. Here's why. Um, you mentioned that Lauren Lapkus is on a lot of podcasts. And yeah. we originally agreed to have her on Cinemaholics. And I think she's uh, shoot. probably going to uh, cancel that uh, interview. Um, so I'm going to need you yeah, to lie. And sell out. Well, what I do for you, John <laughs> Negroni. Um, Good thing yeah. I'm just going to edit all of this out and listeners are never yeah, going to yeah, hear yeah. this because I, I always yeah, remember. Keep, yeah, keep my in- integrity intact, please. Um, <laughs> don't let them know I'm a sellout. <laughs> That's right. So you were just saying, yeah, best movie of the year, The Wrong Missy. Can't wait to have Lauren on the show. Oh, yes. Surprise of the summer. Um, can't wait to see what Lauren Lopkiss does next. Yeah. And I hope it, it I, I can't see how it's going to be any better than this because, whoa, 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 Nelly. It looks fantastic. Sarah Chalk is in it. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's in it as well. Yeah. Look at that. Um, it wouldn't be a happy Madison joint without 
a bunch of people from Happy Madison films and a very yeah you know the Ron Missy is the right call celebrity cameo the tagline should be um, for the poster <laughs> Ron Missy right call Will Ashton twenty twenty all right well that'll do it for this week's episode of Cinemaholics. <sighs> well, yeah, you, yeah. you've been working a lot in the background. Um, the well, machine. I just got cropped with people to go home. And whoa, I think it's it's working. I think we got we're in business now, buddy. All right. Okay. Uh, I hope it doesn't bad. just take us to the nineties, because <laughs> that's going to be a well, whole other episode of Cinemaholics. But can you imagine if it took well, us to the seventies? I mean, here when goes Scooby-Doo nothing. came out. All right, we'll see you all next time. Uh, we're Again, we're going to be talking about Scoob on the next episode. Looking forward to that conversation and a few special guests. But for now, I am John Agroni from the Internet, California, circa and I am Will Ashton from the Internet, Pennsylvania, circa 1992? No. <laughs> Is that when you were born? I was going to say, I, was like, oh, I thought I was a little older than you than that. But anyway, see you next time.